Well, once again, good morning to you and greetings to our friends joining us in the Community Life Center. It's interesting that the Gospels don't take a great interest in Jesus' childhood and adolescent years. There is some mention of an event in Luke's Gospel when Jesus was around 12 years of age, but other than that, we jump right from the stories of his birth into the stories of his ministry as an adult. And so today, we jump ahead in the story by about 30 years, even though we're only moving ahead a few verses in Scripture. So I want to invite you to join me in Matthew's Gospel, the third chapter. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. The New Testament, if you're not familiar with how it's put together, it opens with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're looking at the first one today, the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in the third chapter. We're going to read together verses uh, 1 through 17. Let me invite you to join along. In those days... John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be unto God. Well, when I was uh, in the 10th grade, I got the crazy idea that I should try out for the football team. Now, I was smart enough to wait until the spring exhibition season, which mercifully was only two weeks long. But that didn't change the fact that in those days, I maybe weighed 135 pounds if I was fully dressed and soaking wet. I know it stuns you to think I wasn't always the shining example of athletic prowess you see standing before you today. But in those days, I was just a scrawny little kid. Well, the coach tried to work with me, and he put me at various positions, trying to find some place where I wouldn't get killed. But it didn't matter where I was at the beginning of any play. By the time the whistle blew, I was the guy at the bottom of the pile, always. And after a few days, I began to rethink my wisdom and wondered if maybe the chess team might be a better option for me. But then late one afternoon, as practice was grinding on and I was getting ever closer to quitting, I looked up and saw a man whom I thought was my father sitting on the steps leading down to our practice field. Now, in full confession, I will admit that I later figured out it wasn't him, but at the moment, that didn't matter because it would have been entirely in keeping with his character to leave office early and and come by just to look in and see how I was doing. And in that moment, the mere idea that my father was there looking upon me with some degree of approval and pride was enough to lift my spirits and see me through the end of that day. Now, the sporting world is very happy to know that as soon as that short season was over, I hung up my football cleats forever. But my experience that day, I believe, speaks to a need that resides deeply inside each one of us. Every one of us longs for the blessing and the approval of the people who are closest to us. It's especially true when it comes to the relationship between parents and children. Children want, more than that, children need the blessing of their parents. What I mean is this, children crave the thought that their parents approve of them and accept them unconditionally. And I place stress on the word unconditionally. Sometimes parents, either consciously or unconsciously, send the message that I will approve of you if, if you achieve this standard, if you choose this profession, if you marry this person, if you measure up to some qualifications that I've decided in advance are best for you. Do that and I will approve of you. And when that happens, children spend their energies trying to win approval from their parents by doing what they think their parents want rather than growing into the fullness of their own unique individual talents and abilities. How many people have chosen a career because they thought it's what their parents wanted even though it didn't match up with their uniqueness? Clearly, I'm not just talking about little children then. This is a pattern that follows us 
through our lives, all the way through adulthood. I have encountered many people in counseling situations over the years who as adults are still wrestling with profound feelings of inadequacy and personal frustration because they never felt like they won their parents' approval. Now, on the outside, these are people who look to be very successful, very competent, very high achieving, but on the inside, they still wrestle with the idea that the acceptance that they've always wanted is still just a little bit out of reach, and no matter what they do, they never can quite get there. Children crave the blessing and approval of their parents. Now, for some here today, the blessing of a parent was never an option for you. Maybe a parent died when you were young. Or maybe there was a divorce. Or maybe there was some other circumstance that took one or more of your parents out of your life and made a a meaningful connection with them impossible. But even still, we look for the blessing and approval of the people who are important to us. Husbands and wives long to know that their spouses accept them and approve them no matter what's going on in life, no matter whether I have gained weight or lost weight, I am still yours and you are still mine. True friendships are formed on the basis of acceptance and blessing. What is one of the gifts of a good friend is that you don't have to explain yourself or justify your existence to them, you can simply be. Good coaches know how to push their players and demand more from them and yet at the same time communicate clearly to their players that they are there with them and for them no matter what happens. Even to a certain extent, healthy relationships between employees and employers require a certain degree of blessing. It's a little bit different, but... Employees who are willing to take chances and exceed and push themselves are those who know their employers have got their backs. Knowing that we have the blessing and approval of people who are important in our lives frees us up to become the people God created us to be. Now, I think this desire for blessing and approval, this need for acceptance in a very unique and powerful way lies in the background of this story that we've read today out of Matthew chapter 3. It is the story of Jesus' baptism, which of course raises an important question, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Let me encourage you to park that question for just a moment and hold on to it. We will come back to it before we are done. For now, for the moment, I want us to focus on the words that get spoken at the end of the story. You see, the way Matthew tells the story is Jesus came up out of the waters. He heard a voice from heaven say, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. If you are more into the traditional language of the King James Version, the voice says, this is my beloved son. Understand what's happening here. In this moment, God the Father is pronouncing his blessing, his acceptance, and his approval of God the Son. 
And if that doesn't seem like a big deal to you, consider this. Up to this point in the gospel story, Jesus has apparently done nothing special. Remember what I said a moment ago, the gospel writers tell us almost nothing about Jesus' adolescent and teenage years. And we can presume, therefore, it's because his adolescent and teenage years were probably pretty normal from the outside looking in. So far, Jesus hasn't done anything worth reporting. No miracles, no sermons, no no demonstrations of supernatural power, just another Jewish young man growing up in another Jewish village. Here's why that matters. Standing there in the waters of baptism, Jesus hears God pronounce a blessing over him before he has done anything to deserve it. He hasn't yet performed any of the amazing things we associate with him, and yet God the Father is already announcing his approval and his acceptance and his blessing of God the Son. Understand this. The Father's blessing is not coming as a reward for something Jesus has done. It is coming as an unconditional pronouncement. Jesus already now has the Father's approval. And now on the basis of that unconditional blessing, Jesus can launch out to begin the ministry he came to do. The Father does not bless the Son because of what the Son has done. The Father blesses the Son because of who the Son is. This, of course, is exactly the point. From the very beginning, the gospel writers have been at pains to make it clear that Jesus is the Son of God. That's not a status he earned or acquired from eternity to eternity. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, which means that all the blessings of heaven were already his before he did any of the things we read about in the Bible. So when God the Father spoke spoke this blessing over Jesus, he was simply pronouncing what had always been the case. Jesus was and is the beloved Son of God. God the Father blesses God the Son because of who he is. Of course, the million-dollar question is this. What does that have to do with us? And of what value is that to us? You and I are not eternal. You and I are not divine. You and I have not been a part of the triune Godhead since before time began. So what difference does it make to us whether or not God the Father blessed God the Son? Does that help us in any way? Well, here is the amazing mystery of the gospel. Because of God's grace, you and I have the opportunity to be adopted into the same relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. Through Jesus, you and I have the opportunity to become true sons and daughters of God. 
And when that happens, we become recipients of the same unconditional blessing that we hear God speaking to Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. The acceptance and the approval that the Father speaks over the Son is the same acceptance and approval that the Father speaks over us. Because of grace, and it is all and only because of grace, God offers to us the same blessing. Not on the basis of what we have done but on the basis of who we are in Him. Now to gain some perspective on that, let's go back to the rather curious question that we raised a moment ago. Why does Jesus get baptized? The story we read in Matthew 3 is very clear that John the Baptist was baptizing people as a sign of repentance. And repentance is the expressed desire to turn from sin and adopt a new way of life. Matthew 3 is very clear that the people who came to John seeking baptism were those who confessed their sin and acknowledged their need of a new beginning. So that raises the question, what did Jesus need to repent of? What sin did he have to confess? Well, here the scriptures are crystal clear, and the answer is none, nothing. He'd done nothing wrong. He lived a life of true obedience and perfect goodness. His entire life was lived in complete accordance with the Father's will. And so, from one perspective then, baptism was completely unnecessary. So why? What's the point? The answer has to do with why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus came to stand with and for sinners. See, the entire purpose of Jesus' life and death and resurrection was to come and stand with and ultimately to stand for us in our sinfulness and in our brokenness. And so Jesus began his ministry in many ways in the same way that he ended it. And that is in complete solidarity with sinful people like you and me. Ask yourself this, who gets baptized? Sinners do. Who saved sinners? Jesus does. And so right here at the very beginning of his ministry, before he ever preaches a sermon or heals anybody or performs any miracles or does anything else to draw holy attention to himself, he begins by standing waist deep in the same waters with all the sinful people around him to express his complete solidarity and union with the very broken people that he came to save. Jesus identifies himself fully with people like you and me. And because Jesus identifies with us, we are now identified with him. If we come to him in faith and trust, he draws us into that same unifying and saving relationship with the Father that he has. And today, we've read a story in Matthew's gospel about that. But if we were to flip over to John's gospel, chapter 1, here are the words we would find. Here's how John opens his account of Jesus' life. Speaking of Jesus, John says this, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. In other words, we become children of God not because of what we do to earn that status or to prove our worthiness of it. We become children of God only because in his grace and mercy, God bestows that status upon us. So that is who we are. If if we are in relationship with Jesus. It is not our natural state. Our natural state is to be enemies of God. But by the mercies of Jesus Christ, we can be adopted as God's sons and daughters, His beloved sons and daughters. Which means that apart from anything we do, we already have God's complete and full acceptance and approval. Now, I want you to think of that. The God of the universe, the one who created everything that is from out of nothing, the God who spoke you and me into being and who hung the stars in the skies, that same God right now is looking upon us with full approval. Does that mean that we don't do things that break his heart? No, absolutely not. We continually bring sadness to God's heart by our disobedience. But it begins with a relationship of acceptance and approval. Not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. God already looks upon us with pleasure and divine pride. Because of what Jesus has done, think of this, because of what Jesus has done, you and I actually bring joy to God's heart. That's what it means to be a beloved child. To be someone who, because of the simple nature of who you are, brings joy to others. Now, some of us here today may have a hard time accepting that. Some of us may be thinking, you know, that sounds nice, but you don't know the real me. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know all the ways I've failed. You don't know how inadequate I am. You can't hear the negative loop of voices in my head constantly speaking to me, telling me how unworthy and incompetent I am and that I just don't measure up. And to this point, you may be correct. I can't know that. And I can't hear those voices in your head. But God does. And he sent Jesus for you anyway. The good news of the gospel is that God's blessings over us are not based on what we've done or on what we have failed to do. And until we can wrap our heads and hearts around that, we will never really understand the meaning of grace. Because the good news of the gospel is that God's blessings upon us 
are not based on what we have done. They are based solely and entirely upon what Jesus has done. And so the words that the Father is waiting to speak over us this morning are the same words He spoke over Jesus as He stood there dripping wet in the Jordan River. This is my beloved child. With Him or with her, I am well pleased. Now that may be nice to know just from an emotional standpoint, but does it make any difference in how we live? Does it impact the choices we make and the relationships we form? Well, I would say it makes all the difference in the world. Knowing that we already have been given God's full acceptance can completely change how we live this life. Let's look quickly at some of the things it did for Jesus because what it did for Him can also do for us. First, the blessings of God enabled Jesus to stand fast in the face of temptation. It is no coincidence that immediately after Jesus leaves the waters of baptism, he is led out into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and was tempted by the devil, where over and over again the devil tried to persuade Jesus to break faith with the Father. And every time he did, Jesus would reach back into the scriptures of the Old Testament to remind himself of the promises that God had made to his people. And every time he did, Jesus was able to stand firmly in the Father's identity and in the Father's promises and in his relationship with him. He could resist the offer the devil was making to him. Knowing God's unconditional blessing in our lives can have the same effect on us. It can help us as well to stand fast in the face of temptation. In fact, I would argue that becomes the primary means of our overcoming temptation. If we try to ground it solely in our willpower, we will find very quickly that our willpower is inadequate. But when we can constantly remind ourselves of who we are as the beloved sons and daughters of God, we will have a growing desire to live into that identity and will make better choices. When my dad was young, he had a very strong relationship with his maternal grandfather, who I never had the opportunity to meet. Oftentimes when my dad would be home from college as he was getting ready to leave to head back to school, his, his grandfather would always stop him and say, hey, don't forget to tell him whose boy you are. Now those words served a couple of purposes. One, they were meant to offer some encouragement and value to a kid growing up in the mill village in Georgia. You're somebody, you matter. But I also suspect that they were my grandfather's way of kind of warning my dad, don't forget who you are. Don't screw up the family name. Make decisions on the basis of who you already know you are. Be strong and firm in your identity as a child of God. And knowing that will help to protect us from the realities of sin which are constantly assaulting us. 
Second, knowing God's unconditional blessing enabled Jesus to pursue the Father's will instead of spending his energies trying to win the approval of people. There was a powerful religious establishment in Jesus' day, and the people who sat at the top of that establishment believed it was their right and, frankly, their duty to determine who was in and who was out, who counted and who didn't, who was worthy and who wasn't. Now, strategists will tell you that if you want to make an impact on the world, you would be wise to get in good with the people in power. Appease them, win them over, use them to your gain. Jesus wasn't interested. You see, Jesus had a clear understanding of who he was and why he had come, and so he did not waste a single minute of his time trying to gain approval from people, especially from people whose purposes were at cross-purposes with his. Instead, he maintained a singular focus on proclaiming the kingdom of God. And even when that cost him, he could stand fast. The same impact can be had on us. It's like I said a moment ago, there are plenty of people in the world who spend a lot of their lives still trying to win the blessing and approval of other people. There's only one problem. It almost never comes. And even when it does, it's not a true blessing. Because, friends, if you had to earn it, it's not a blessing. And in the meantime, we miss out on the opportunities to live into the unique role that God has given to each one of us. A role that we have been given to play in His kingdom. Now, I am not suggesting to you that we should be unhuman or inhuman about this and completely ignore other people. As I've already said, it makes a huge difference whether or not we are blessed by the people around us. But here's the thing, we either are blessed by the people around us or we are not. It usually has very little to do with anything we've done to make that happen. But in the meantime, the more confident we can become in God's unconditional approval over us, the freer we are and the more likely we are to pursue God's unique calling in our lives. Now, the people around us can bless that or not. But either way, our confidence is in Him and in who we are in Him. Finally, God's blessing and approval enabled Jesus to stand firm in the face of injustice, hardship, and suffering. Jesus did nothing wrong ever, and yet he was dragged to a cross anyway. Along the way, he was insulted, he was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was tortured. And he had never done anything but love people and tell them the truth. Now, at one level, you could look at that as foolishness and say, how could he possibly stand there and allow himself to undergo that kind of humiliation? 
And the answer lies in the fact that he trusted the Father would vindicate him. I can't help but wonder, the scriptures don't say this, but I can't help but wonder if at some point while Jesus was hanging on that cross in the midst of the pain and suffering, if his mind didn't drift back to that day when he was standing in the Jordan River and heard the Father speak those words of blessing over him. And you can almost imagine him saying to himself, okay, Father, you said it, now I am going to trust it. And on the basis of that trust, he went through with that painful plan for our salvation. And three days later, that trust was vindicated. Sooner or later, we too will face hardship and suffering. In fact, I'm guessing that most of us here today either already have or maybe even are right now. At some point, you'll be ridiculed for trying to do the right thing. At some point, you'll be insulted for trying to live according to the truth. At some point, you will love somebody and they will throw it back in your face. Or one day, you may walk into the doctor's office and get the diagnosis you have feared the most. Sooner or later, the unfairness and injustice of life will confront itself to us. And in those moments, how do we press forward in hope? I think the answer lies in whether or not we have experienced God's unconditional approval. If we know that God's blessing holds firm in our lives, then regardless of the circumstances, we can still press forward in hope. I began with a story about my dad, so let me finish with one. As many of you know, my grandfather passed away just prior to Christmas, and I am so grateful for your many expressions of sympathy. In the weeks leading up to his death, as his condition worsened and the outcome was increasingly obvious, my dad drove from his home in Charlotte over to Georgia to be at his dad's bedside where my dad and his sister, my aunt, would take turns staying the night in the hospital room so my grandmother could go home and get some rest. One night when it happened to be my dad's turn to keep vigil, my grandfather was a bit restless and uncomfortable and wasn't sleeping well, and so he and my dad spent most of the night sitting up talking. Some of it was small talk, but the way my dad would later report it to me, at some point during the overnight hours, they had the talk. They both knew what was coming. They both knew time was limited. And so now was the moment to say what needed to be said while the opportunity was there. And mostly it was my granddad who did the talking. And he went through every member of the family on my dad's side and on my aunt's side, one by one, and he talked about each one of us and how proud he was of us. how much joy we brought to his life. Now, my father had never had any reason to doubt his father's love and acceptance, but he left that hospital the next morning with a different sense of what we all knew was coming. And while, of course, we grieved my grandfather's sickness and death, knowing that we were the recipients of his approval and his acceptance enabled us to face that death without regrets. 
Friends, I stand before you today as a blessed man. I am blessed by my family. I am blessed by this church. And I am so grateful for all of those expressions of approval and blessing that all of you have demonstrated to me. But most of all, because of Jesus Christ, I am blessed by my Father in heaven. And nothing will ever change that. And I pray the same for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, speak to us again the words of blessing and approval that we so desperately need to hear so that we might go forward and live as confident children in your world, eager and ready to do your will. May it be so among us today, O oh God. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.